Hi, ActiveHistory.ca is pleased to present a recording of The Future of the Past, Transmitting History to Future Generations. The session was held as part of the 2014 Pierre Savard Conference at the University of Ottawa. You can find recordings of other talks at ActiveHistory.ca. As a matter of fact, uh, like a library book from Archives Canada, the uh, Library and Archives Canada. I'm an archivist, actually. I have a PhD in history from Carleton. Uh, also did my MA there in uh, Russian and East European studies. And my uh, bachelor's is from McMaster University in Hamilton. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Bonjour, moi, Stéphane Lévesque. Je suis professeur à l'Université d'Ottawa, la Faculté d'éducation. Euh, J'enseigne là l'histoire et la didactique de l'histoire et je suis aussi le directeur du euh, laboratoire d'histoire euh, virtuelle et récits euh, ici à l'université. Je suis ici, ça fait déjà euh, quelques années. Avant, j'étais euh, professeur à Western et avant ça, j'étais euh, à UBC euh, sur la côte ouest. Donc, euh, je vous remercie de l'invitation pour euh, ce superbe atelier. Merci. At here at the University of Ottawa now, teaching as a sessional. Mm. I've been teaching on and off, I guess, since the, uh, 1997, and um, also finished my PhD here at the University of Ottawa, studying clothing as a source and looking at construction of gender with children, and working on a project that's related to hair now. I also had another life as a um, entrepreneur and um, Vice President Research for a large research firm that was located in Ottawa and Vancouver and had the opportunity to sort of build research um, environment that was private sector working with a lot of public sector clients over the years. So I've had experience hiring researchers, building research teams, and then executing the projects in archives and repositories across the country. So that's been sort of an exciting element of Je suis Jean-Pierre Morin, je suis l'historien principal du ministère des Affaires autochtones du développement du Nord du Canada. I've been at INAC, as it used to be called, ANSI, because everybody's <laughs> very ANSI there, uh, at uh, Aboriginal Affairs since, uh, two, since 1999. I actually finished my graduate work here at the University of Ottawa, and then two weeks later started at Aboriginal Affairs, at Indian Affairs at the time, so there are, there are ways to get an actual government job out of here. Um, as the departmental historian, I work on all kinds of different aspects on the history of the department. I assist with litigation and with claims. Uh, I do the actual basic history of the department for those who do not know anything about UBMAs. How many people know nothing? Uh, Katie is a former student, and she can attend. She can uh, talk about nothing. 
know how, <laughs> how, well, how people know nothing. Uh, I am also the uh, lead for the department on the never-ending commemoration file, uh, the Road to 2017 or Canada 150 commemoration file. So we are undertaking all kinds of new commemoration activities. Uh, so it's a very wide-ranging kind of job, uh, and it's not what you would normally consider a typical history job, but it, it's, it's a special kind of place. Uh, so let's get started. Now we all know the theme of the roundtable today, so I will put it to the audience to see if anybody has a question. Cricket, cricket. Okay. <laughs> so panelists, first question, and this one is kind of leading off um, from the roundtable that was um, basically paneled by students yesterday, and uh, Professor McCutcheon, you can uh, probably uh, talk a little bit and expand upon what was spoken about yesterday as well. Um, how can new technologies help the transmission of history today? Big question to start off with. Um, I think that new technologies um, like uh, traditional or analog technologies uh, require similar uh, skills development, analysis, work, and, and it, you might be able to do a diversity of um, uh, uses with it, but that we still need to consider the basic foundations of, of what it is that we are learning with these tools. And so an example that I would use with my students is that you have something like the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, which is a fantastic use of technology in terms of a database that is very usable for students um, and that they have exploited uh, database technology, imaging, uh, search engines to make this um, an excellent use for students. Whereas the House of Commons debates, that's another important tool that people use, has not made use of the technology, that it's really just a series of PDF pages that have been put together um, in a loose database. and so. I think that being able to identify strong technologies, being able to use them well, and then teach students to critically um, uh, evaluate them and then transmit them in terms of their projects or their possible career choices is sort of one thing that um, working towards in some of the undergraduate courses. Um, to add to this, okay. The, I'm a member of the National Council of Public History, uh, which I encourage you all to participate in and join, uh, which is uh, currently an American-based public history program, uh, uh, organization which is spreading around uh, all kinds of places. And there's a lot of push towards what they have denoted as digital history, which is beyond the, the simple tools, but how history is taught, how history is used, and how the public engages with history. And this is part of the question I think that needs to be to part of an addition to the question, how should history be consumed? Uh, I, I am not an academic. I don't work in academia in any kind of way. I have you know, this is about as much uh, contact with academia as I get. Uh, and the tools and the and the and the vehicle of the transmission of the information has to be done in a completely different manner than what we do in an academic setting. There are no such thing as papers in the real world. There are. Websites, and I know that there's a virtual historian and other tools like that that are very useful. But there's podcasts like we're doing here today. There's there's the Twitterverse and 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 Facebook and whatnot. These are actual tools, not just for 
transmitting history, but also having the discussion around history. Because if we're just presenting a paper or just presenting content without the discussion, it serves no real purpose. It has to have an actual, whatever we do has to lead to debate uh, about the field. So I would like to say that uh, it seems to me that uh, this conversation, by the way, uh, that we're having here with about 25, 30 people is part of a larger conversation. Obviously, it's going on elsewhere. You may have seen that last week, Harvard University hosted uh, a similar type workshop talking about the future of the history PhD. Uh, the Canadian Museums Association theme this year was the future of museums, and certainly archives have been talking about what the future of their particular uh, profession is and uh, the centers of archives themselves are. Um, in the States, they're using an acronym called uh, GLAM, so that stands for Galleries, Libraries, Archives, and Museums, where they're talking about not necessarily joining the institutions or even living in the same building, uh, but about the interdisciplinarity uh, between the professions what they have to contribute, each of them, what they can take away from the discussion. And it seems to me that technology is part of that conversation. So really, uh, my, my personal hope is that technology can lead to uh, a more engaged public, uh, can help institutions like universities, museums, and, uh, and other groups uh, engage with uh, civic-minded people and possibly lead to other kinds of social networking. So we're moving possibly away from simply networking on social media sites towards really engaging with the public, so social engagement. Um, I think that we can see paths to that already. I think we can see emerging initiatives like, um, like a few that I know have been discussed already at this conference. Recently, there was an article maybe about a year or so ago in, uh, on BBC uh, on the website saying that uh, in the 21st century, we are all in one way or another historian in the digital age in the sense that um, we often intuitively consume a lot of historical information uh, using technology, whether it's the fact that we're Googling something that we didn't know, uh, whether it's reading material that we get now through uh, uh, push-pull uh, uh, sites of information, but also that we produce, uh, in one way or another, historical material uh, through technology. Uh, think about all the emails that you receive, but you also send and produce. Think about uh, the increasing number of websites now that are recording the experiences of people, uh, whether it's, for example, the September 11 uh, digital archive, Katrina digital archive, uh, here in Canada, for example, the Memory Project, uh, which is meant to uh, record, preserve, share uh, the stories of uh, Canadian soldiers. <clears throat> um, we have a number of these activities now that are meant to produce but also share, disseminate. Uh, information, knowledge about the past through technology. Uh, but beyond this, I think what's important to remember is that increasingly, not only do we uh, consume and produce historical information through technology, but that we are shaped by these kinds of technologies. So when we think about a subject, uh, it's not just 
what we have learned in school or what we get uh, through our classroom textbook increasingly is what we get outside of that through the real curriculum and the experiences that increasingly is being filtered through uh, technology. So we're being shaped by this and uh, the young generation in particular is highly, uh, highly contagious in the sense that they consume media even more than uh, we personally do in our own lives. Um, but they don't necessarily see it this way. They don't see the filters. They don't see it uh, as a barrier to them. So I think we, we need to recognize this, that technology is affecting uh, history more than uh, we sometimes think. We, we like to think that historians work in dusty archival uh, material sources. Uh, but more and more, uh, historians are working through other means. Uh, for researching, for producing, but also for um, shaping uh, people's ideas about the past. Just to add to that, uh, there's a lot of discussion currently in national archives, not, not our national, not necessarily just our national archives, but national archives institutions around the world as to the new source as the digital media and the digital content as an actual source. And there were several sessions at the National Council of Public History sessions in California at their annual meeting on how to deal with digital media, digital sources as the same kind of source as we would by going to the archives and pulling open an 18th century journal. How do we deal with those different types of sources, which is a, a, a whole category of discussion in and of itself. Uh, and for those who are very interested in going to Amsterdam in October, uh, there will be a conference in Amsterdam uh, dealing with digital history, and, deal, and there's three sessions dedicated to this one topic. How do we deal with the digital information and make it into the new source? Um, because, let's be honest, nobody is writing journals anymore, handwritten journals or blogs. <coughs> how do we deal with those kind of things? So this is all part of this whole tools issue, in my opinion. Um, at the CMA uh, last week or two weeks ago uh, discussing the future of museums and so on somebody mentioned that the tone of some of the conversations uh, could lead a, an observer to think that there was a certain anxiety in the field uh, and I just want to mention that it seems to me that we could also as historians all of us, I mean uh, historians being a very large term, including archaeologists, anthropologists, and other you know, people who study the past, we could also possibly slide into a kind of anxiety about uh, the overwhelming new technologies, uh, the access to information, uh, the way we can provide those, or the way that gaps uh, still exist in the archival record. I'm just, I'd just like to point out that it seems to me that historians are gifted uh, with a particular set of skills, and maybe there, there are a number of, of skill sets there, to negotiate those kinds of challenges. And in some ways, the skill sets themselves haven't changed over time. So to access a finding aid is essentially the same kind of skill set that you need today to access digital records. And so uh, I would just like to uh, perhaps be a voice of reassurance if ever there was a need of one in a, in a time when potentially we could become anxious about uh, change. Uh, in suggesting that historians are in fact experts in studying change over time. That's what historians do after all. And it seems to me that uh, they may ve be very well equipped to deal with these changes as, as um, difficult as they may be. Thank you. Uh, 
Uh, I'd just like to bring it back to the transmission of history itself. And uh, Jean-Pierre, you mentioned Twitter and social media as a mean of uh, transmitting history. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on it. Um, personally, I don't see how Twitter can be useful to uh, transmit history. Uh, and for example, I don't like the idea of a three-minute thesis, and there's now the equivalent on Twitter, a tweet your thesis or something like that. Um, so how can, can we use social media in that way? Well, I agree. 140 characters is not something that you can actually transmit in an entire very profound philosophical thought uh, or historical thought. That being said, there are some people that are remarkably good at it. Uh, and, uh, and I think that it's not just about how, what you can say on Twitter. It's what you can do with Twitter. It's about taking the Twitter, the, the Twitter, that's a good one, uh, you, using the Twitter machine and, you, and having it resend to somewhere else. The link that we can put in, the short URL, it's about getting your message out. You have a blog, a, a blog is, is, is to me the, the new way of getting your information out. It's a thousand lines, it's 800 words, whatever it is. But if it's sitting on your webpage, or in your, or in WordPress, or on, uh, in, in, in whatever other uh, format that you have, if no one knows it's there, it serves no purpose. It's the same thing as pr as printing a, 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 an article that appears in a, a, a in a monograph that sits in the library that no one will ever see. Uh, Twitter is good at having uh, sending out the information, but it's also remarkably good and remarkably bad at at having the conversation. You send it out and it leads to the discussion. The discussion used to be done in journals, printed over months. Now it's instantaneous. And you can have that. 140 characters, you can say a lot of very rude things and you can say a lot of very complimentary things in 140 characters. So that is one of the tools as to how we stimulate the debate with Twitter. I don't think it's about making history with Twitter. It's about this, the discussion and the debate uh, on Twitter. For, just to use Twitter as an example. <clears throat> I have a, uh, a colleague who actually, <clears throat> he wrote a paper, but actually turned it into a YouTube clip um, about exactly this very question. Uh, Sam Weinberg, the title of, you just go on Google, and, uh, or on YouTube and uh, Google uh, his paper uh, or his, uh, his video, it's called Untrained to Tweet. And what he shows is that historians are untrained to, to tweet. Uh, they don't live in that 21st century world. They still, in many ways, live in the world of researching, uh, then producing, then publishing. And then he looks at what is the impact of all of this in the 21st century. Um, and he takes his own case, looking at what he's been doing for the last 20 years in terms of researching, writing, and publishing. Looking at, for example, the impact, uh, publication impact, okay, what he had with all of his publication, publishing in the most uh, difficult, most uh, scholarly, um, recognized journal in the US, with very little return. 38 people citing his work in the field and so on. And he questioned all of this in a world where uh, the impact may not necessarily be 
just through scholarly publication in the way we do research. Uh, if we want to make a change, and I think that's in, in some way uh, what historians that we're all trying to do is, you know, to add a little drop uh, in, in the bucket, we can use technology like Twitter, uh, not because it's the end of it in itself, but because it provides the tools to reach out and have an impact on what we do. Uh, so instead of just writing an article that after we're done, it's published, maybe some grad students will read it because it's a required uh, element in a course pack, uh, chances is that most people won't even know about it. Uh, there are too many journals, too many articles anyway, uh, and they're shelved everywhere. So we don't necessarily uh, take the time or being aware of all of these. While through technology, we can more easily, first of all, reach out, but also second, find a way, and I like what you're saying, is that um, technologies or social networks like Twitter's uh, is not about what we write, is what we can do with it. So we can do things and impact people in ways that uh, the scholarly uh, world that we were trained to work in may not necessarily work well, particularly with a younger audience. Yeah, so just to follow up on that, um, uh, I think like any tool, again, social media, know your audience and what the objectives, and I think that there's great dissemination possibilities with Twitter, but also thinking about it as a conversation and being part of a conversation. And so I couldn't go to the National Council of Public History this year because it was in March and it was a busy time of year, but I could follow the proceedings because people were live tweeting. And so I was part of right, the discussion. I could participate from afar. And so when I go to conferences and I live tweet, people who can attend you know, the King Historical Association can follow different folks with hashtags and, and be part of it. So I try to introduce right, hashtags, social media conversation, and tools, not only to my students, but then also to the larger historical community to get more people part of the conversation because the more people who are involved, the more information gets disseminated. And so, you know, I can, you know, somebody has time to, you know, be searching the web to find the 10 best digital history websites. Well, right now with my teaching schedule, I can't do that. But I see that they've shared that and that goes into my reading list. And I am benefiting from the dissemination, the conversation, the expertise of literally hundreds of people who are everyday researching. And it can be their academic article, and it might be their blog, and it might be their top 10 list. And so then I, in turn, bring that to my students. So for the first time this year, I had Facebook pages for my students. Because after a round, I saw that you know every time I pass by, students click right? Try to really quickly get out of Facebook. Because they have it open, they have split screens, right? They're taking notes, they're checking Facebook constantly, or Twitter, right? And I chose Facebook because I like the graphics, I think I can be more effective. So I can't, I made the decision that I could not always prevent them from going on Facebook, no matter how hard I try, right? It's really difficult. So why don't I try to control the content that they're getting through the feed, so I can belong to the American Historical Association, the American Organization of American Historians, National Council of Public History, historians who have Facebook pages, and then I can share the content of what's going on in history in the US um, 
we did the Quebec election so I could provide them with academic and solid information about the Quebec election to that class. So that I know that they're taking a look at it. It tells me how many people saw it. And then I can get them to get going on a conversation about it because the likelihood of them reading five academic articles on the history of the American Historical Association in a term, less likely than me sending right, some of the information about this day in history or whatever it might be that, that I'm getting access to and then sharing this information. And I think there are ways to improve it, but dissemination, it's more effective than if I post on Blackboard an additional reading, right, that's 30 to 40 pages, a great article on a deep analysis of a topic, but this generation is multitasking, is doing so many things, and so, you know, if you calculate the amount of time they spend doing stuff, it's more than 24 hours because they're, you know, on the bus and doing something, they're walking and doing something. Um, not always safe and a great idea, but this is reality, right? And so how do you work with that reality? And, and again, learning to effectively use it. And do I tweet, you know, I'm walking down the stairs and buying a donut? No, right? But I have a community that is engaged and dynamic, and again, I can be part of different conversations. And that's what I want to bring to them. And then I can use it in a teaching way so that this year I had students write amazing papers where they had to follow a hashtag around Remembrance Day as an example, because there's so much commemoration. So they followed the hashtag a week before, the day of, and a week after. And then they did an analysis of who's tweeting. Is it the public? Are they institutions? Are they presses, university presses? Is it your average World War II vet that's tweeting? Likely not, but then you can follow are they tweeting articles? Are they tweeting photographs? What kind of information is there? Because all of these tweets are going to be archived, and historians of another generation are going to have to try to sort out this material. And I think we calculated how many pages of information gets published a year through Twitter. It's something like 40,000 pages if you were to do it. And that's a lot of books. How do you go through that information? Well, you need skills to be able to think of what is the you know party at my place on Friday versus the you know most important uh, conferences that are taking place this time of year, right? And so you just you know follow these conversations, and I think it's great. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I agree with every, everything that's been said here about conversations and about community. Uh, just to add very briefly to that. There, apparently there's research to say that institutions that are seen to be community engaged uh, attract funding. So from uh, an institutional point of view, that could be why Twitter is being used. Um, du point de vue personnel, là, si je peux parler en français, j'espère que ça va. Uh, du point de vue personnel, uh, et aussi en voyant les expériences de mes collègues, c'est aussi une question de développement professionnel. Parce que euh, dans le, le temps où on est un peu, euh, disons, un peu serré avec un budget, peut-être on ne peut pas aller, justement comme Joe a dit, au, à toutes les conférences qu'on aimerait, euh, aimerait aller. Alors, effectivement, euh, avec Twitter, on est stimulé. Euh, on peut passer nos expériences, on peut lire les articles d'ailleurs, sans barrière, là, je veux dire, dans des autres pays, euh, dans les autres domaines. Alors là, on a vraiment comme poussé euh, à réfléchir à nos propres tâches, 
différemment et peut-être, euh, bon, peut-être ça va nous influencer dans notre travail de quotidien. Alors, personnellement, je trouve ça vraiment intéressant et, euh, et voilà, je, ça me change la vie, en fait. Ça m'a changé la vie, Twitter, il faut dire. Euh, surtout si jamais, si jamais une, une historienne euh, se sent un peu isolée, disons, pendant le temps qu'il qu fasse sa thèse ou euh, parce qu'il habite loin de ses collègues, là, on pourrait vraiment comme passer des, des liens, euh, peut-être pas de quotidienne, peut-être pas des journaux. Par exemple, on voit beaucoup de ça, là, les gens qui, qui gazouillent. Les, les articles euh, récents dans la presse de, de quotidienne, mais on voit aussi les gens qui font comme des types de throwback Thursday. Ah oui, un article euh, qui a été publié il y a euh, 20 ans, mais qui, qui parle toujours, qui parle toujours à nous. Euh, alors, quelque part, je pense que c'est une conversation qui est incontournable aujourd'hui. Yeah, just to add, there's one thing that everyone has to always remember about anything that's on social media and on internet. Once it's out there, it's out there. You, you think you deleted your tweet, but it's out there somewhere. It's still safe somewhere. Uh, and it is one of the things that it's always mindful to be, to, it's always something to be thinking about when you are doing these kind of things or when you're participating in the conversation or whatnot. Mm -hmm. I, for example, if you go on my Twitter feed, you will see remarkably little about what's happening in the Canadian government and the Canadian commemoration scene. You both say, nothing, in fact. Because that is my job, and I have to be very careful as to what I post and what I tweet um, professionally, because it is a consideration. It, is, it would be a conflict of interest on some levels, and at the same time, I, there are codes of ethics as a public servant that I have to follow. Uh, but it's the same no matter where you are. You always have to take that into account, because Just as they, as you probably heard the comments about people's postings on Facebook, when you go and apply for a job, we will go and look at your Facebook page. We will. So if it's pictures of drunken parties, we'll, it has an impact on what we think about you. It's the same thing with your Twitter account. So a student comes to work for me, I end up following them. Katie doesn't know this yet. Uh, so that I know what, I, I, I want to know, I want to know how the person thinks. So it's, it's part of that thing, and it's just, that's just a warning and a consideration that everything, everything, it is a wonderful tool, but it can also lead to your downfall. I'm, uh, I'm actually going to steer the conversation um, in a little bit of a direct, different direction now, um, because all of our panelists, and as well as our audience members, um, have commented on this idea of public engagement and using technologies to transmit to a wider audience and to have a conversation started with a wider audience. However, I am going to poke that tension bubble and ask, um, is it affecting the quality of content written? Is it affecting the quality of conversation? I'm, I'm going to answer and say no. For the very simple reason that the, that means there's a conversation outside of the hallowed halls of universities. There, there's a discussion here in the universities, and then there's the discussion outside of the universities. Uh, we just worked on the War of 1812 commemoration. You were probably all very well aware. Uh, it, it was never ending. It's still not done yet, by the way. And it'll be done sometime this fall. And when you ask people what the number one book that they've ever read about the War of 1812, they will never tell you it's an academic. They will tell you it's Pierre Burton's War of 1812, two-volume set which is so full of historical inaccuracies, it's shameful. But nonetheless, 
that's what they're reading. Pierre Burton wrote some great public history, popular history. It's not necessarily very good history in an academic sense. And this is the reality. If <coughs> academics and professionally trained historians are not engaging with the public, the only history that people will get is the popular history. Peter C. Newman writes some great po po uh, popular history. I don't know how good history it actually is, but that's a different story in and of itself. And it's the same thing from a government perspective. If we don't have that conversation outside of academia, you are literally letting the government decide what you're going to be commemorating and how you're going to be commemorating it and what national message we should be having. I think it's a, it's a question of professionalism, the same as it would be in your everyday conversations, your coffee room chats, your online interactions uh, via podcast. So there's a register that's involved, and uh, somewhere you need to hit uh, the, the tone and perhaps the content as well, somewhere between uh, super academic to the point of being irrelevant uh, and so, um, so colloquial that it could potentially bring down the level of, of the conversation. So um, again, I would say that as historians, I think that you probably have the skill set to do that. And, and if you felt like you needed to be able to tweet that you're going down the stairs to have a donut, you may need to have uh, a separate Twitter account for that kind of conversation. Um, Unless you're but, talking about the history donuts. <laughs> I, I really do think that as a stress, the other thing that's interesting here is that if I were running a small business, which I am not, so there's absolutely no um, conflict of interest involved here. But if I were, and if I were thinking about um, what my social media strategy would be, I would want to employ somebody to do that, to think about the strategy and then possibly to actually write the tweets themselves, who was good at risk management. And I would suggest to you that historians have that skill set. So in other words, you're used to looking at sources analyzing the sources, weighing them, and making decisions about how valid they are, how, how much confidence you place in various sources, what the, you know, what the arguments are that would poke holes in, in your, um, in potentially the discussion that you're making. So I'm thinking that that kind of skill set could be also applicable to other domains, including social media, including weighing uh, sources, including possibly future. So thinking about future security risks and so on, which is essentially about perception management, right? So I just suggest to you that historians have those kind of gifts. Uh, potentially, if, uh, I don't know, a hair salon wanted to have a Twitter feed about fashion and hairstyles and how it's changed over time, wouldn't it make sense to hire a historian to, uh, to look into that, to, to tweet those kind of things? Um, Anyway, that's just to say that I think that it's the opposite is possibly possible. <laughs> possibly possible, excuse me. Uh, historians maybe have the opportunity to bring the level of conversation up on social media rather than um, allowing it to, to diminish. Well, it's an interesting question because if we think of uh, public figures like politicians, Athletes who might get involved in right, teaching their sport to children or to young people. Um, we don't necessarily think that the level of hockey that they might play or the level of soccer that they might play is going to be diluted in that way, but that you are opening up 
to a wider public, right, the possibilities that that career choice has and to get them to aspire. And I think what historians can do is, you know, by being more publicly engaged, we had a conversation, you know, talking about a lot of the local museums that don't have historians who are involved, right, that, you know, that we are not engaged perhaps enough um, in local history and community history um, to share our expertise and to, you know, um, participate in the celebration of commemoration. We think that maybe what's happening isn't the way that we would do it, so by doing nothing, we're having it shaped for us. And so you don't have to dilute it to be active in it. I think that it's a different audience. It's that if I were to give a lecture to a certain group, I want to know my audience and the kind of information that I would give might be a bit different, but it doesn't have to be less rigorous based on the audience. It still has the rigor, but it just may uh, have different messages and, and different outcomes that I'm looking for. Right? If I want to inspire a group of high school students to come into the history program, I may share a different kind of research that I'm doing with them. Like last night, you know, the surfing metaphor was great, right? Aspire, right, to find that timeless place. This question is a different way of bringing, uh, you know, uh, an idea to your audience. And you wouldn't give that same metaphor to a different uh, group of academics. So I think doesn't have to be diluted, it just has to know the outcomes and what you're looking to do in that regard. <clears throat> I'm not sure where I want to go with, with, with all of this, but uh, let me put something out and, and see where it goes, and maybe I can even show things that I have on that. <clears throat> There's a paradox uh, right now in Canada, and it's not just here. Uh, it's in many Western countries. The paradox is as follows. There is a belief in the public, often in the media, but particularly among uh, political leaders, conservative in particular, that people don't know. And they don't do much with regard to history. They don't know what happened. And uh, as a result of this, we need to tell them. We need to commemorate those events so people get a sense of those who came before, what they did, and how great all of this makes us feel uh, in terms of a collective belonging. We see this uh, in Canada, War of 1812 commemoration, First World War, leading on the way to Canada 150, and it started before that. We had... Uh, uh, a few years before that, uh, de Quebec, all of these. And it's not just taking place here, it's taking place around the world. But the paradox is that uh, there is this recurring belief, we don't know. Uh, people don't know, and we keep surveying them on quizzes, Canada Day quiz, and we get what we want. They don't know. They don't know who was the first prime minister. They don't know who won the War of 1812. All of these kind of things. And so it tells us that we need to do more of it, so it's the spinning wheel. But at the same time, we do have people, university people, doing research, telling us that uh, people are not so ignored. Not only are they not ignored, but they're very active. 
Uh, and the example you talked about is very true in the sense that people do consume a lot of history. Uh, there is a book that just came out uh, from a group of colleagues called Canadians and Their Past, a major uh, curious study looking at what it is that Canadians actually do uh, with the past. Canadians are very active. Uh, over three quarter of them watch historical movies, preserve photographs, uh, attend ceremonies, and so on. They're very active, but not necessarily in the way the governments would like them to be. Uh, but more than that, uh, when we look at it is what it is actually they do know and think, then we get, I think, at the crux of it. Because we spend a lot of time wondering what it is that people don't know. But we don't spend much time, particularly in, in, uh, in our research, looking at what it is that they do know. What kind of things do they do know about the past? When you say, well, they do get history to uh, Pierre Burton's uh, or 1812, uh, okay, fair enough. But what is it that they get out of these books? What is it that they get out of schooling? I mean, you guys are all in grad school or undergrad, I'm not sure. Uh, but what is it that you will get out of your degree? And you get out of it and then try to find a job, or if I go on the street and ask you, what is the history of Canada, or the history of Quebec, and so on. Uh, we don't know much about that. Uh, and we need to know more, because that's how people shape their consciousness and ideas about, not just the past, about who they are in the present. And that's the kind of things we do, I, I do, uh, with colleagues or here, uh, Jean-Philippe and Raphael. Uh, that's the kind of things we work on. What it is that people actually do know and think when uh, we scratch the surface and we look at their consciousness and see what they think and do with the past. And we see that uh, what government thinks or would like us to think might not be exactly what people actually do think and do. There might be divergence, but also sometimes convergence. Uh, but the problem is that uh, it's like two separate worlds. They don't seem to navigate in the same direction. So that's the kind of things I'd like people, particularly in the academia, people like you, start thinking. This is the people do know and think uh, about the past when they use it, what I call their usable past, the past that is usable for their life. Not the past was the scholarly book, the past that people use in their daily life. Questions, Christian? Uh, I, I feel oddly like uh, a cranky old man with what I'm about to say. <laughs> Um, okay, I'm already a friend. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it seems to me, and we got to it a little bit in the last question with the, with the following question. It seems to me that the, the internet is an excellent repository of primary sources. I, I absolutely adore it for primary sources because there's so many digital things out there that I can use in my, my own research. And again, we talked about the in, being enshrined in the Ivory Tower. Um, and that's where. I've chosen, most of us, I believe, in this room, have chosen to be uh, for the, the, the near future as students, right? Um, once we complete our studies, how far we want to go, we've got to make decisions about how we're going to use the skills that we've developed, et cetera, et cetera. But nevertheless, uh, when, when we're in um, the academic environment, there is such a thing as quality, and there is such a thing as quality of secondary research. And I've had a lot of experiences, negative experiences, 
finding things on the internet from somebody that I don't know and going, no, that's wrong. Like, I know that that's wrong because I'm an expert in this area. And, you know, it's Wikipedia and I got super keen. I could figure out how to edit it, but let's be honest. Is anybody here better at Wikipedia? Oh, really? Cool. <laughs> there was a workshop at the NCPH, by the way. All right, well, that's, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> 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 but um, within our own areas, what we're trying to do is get at the best truth we can based on the present. And it seems to me that there's no way to verify the opinions of people on the internet um, without using the sources that have always been used, the, the journals. Etc. Moreover, those those sources are as easily digitally available. So I believe you gave the example of the the prof that said, "Well, my my article is only cited 38 times, but how many times has it been read?" And moreover, for that specific uh, area, if you, if you've got someone like me, some matter of students, how how much has that influenced the thinking overall in in the, in the in the field? And then from there, it can be translated into sort of a more more public environment. But I, to me, it seems that like all of these new digital tools pale in comparison, at least in the academic setting, um, with the the tried and true. So, so can I ask a clarifying question, please, to your question? Are you talking about peer review? Yeah, essentially. Um, okay. Uh, because ultimately, the question of peer review is currently being debated until the cows come home when it comes to digital tools, digital media. Everyone is trying to figure out what it is. Because as, as was already mentioned and as you brought up again, we don't really know how many people are reading the document, the, the, the journal article. It's only cited 38 times. What does that mean? What does that matter? I have one article that's been, that's been cited once. In all of the articles I've ever written, one. That's it. And he got it wrong. Okay? Uh, he literally transcribed it incorrectly. Uh, so how accurate is that, does that make it? Is it about peer review? What does that mean about peer review? Is the peer review process that currently exists in academia something that is translatable to the outside world? Right? This is part of the issue. Uh, and we're back again to the, we're stovepiping it as to what's good for academia and what's good for the rest of the world. Uh, and ultimately, there, I don't think there's, there is an easy answer to it. I think there's a transition. We're moving towards a transition period. Uh, in the U.S., they are going rather bananas over trying to figure this one out because if you think the hiring is low for professors here, it's much worse there because they have 100,000 times more students graduating with PhDs, and there are no more jobs in the U.S. than there are here. So these students who are in their, their, their master's, undergraduate, and doctoral programs are doing digital projects. And they want the digital projects to be recognized for when they apply for tenure. But when they apply for tenure, it doesn't count because it's not peer-reviewed in an academic journal. So it, it's very much a catch-22 um, on that one aspect. That's the peer-review. Actually, your, second, your, your first point, really, uh, which is about this is wrong, you know, this is right. I, I think we could say the same thing about academic journals. Just because it's peer-reviewed doesn't mean that it's actually all that correct, uh, or that things haven't changed since it's gone up. So I think it's a, it, it's the, the field hasn't caught up yet to the actual technology and the, the different mindset that the technology has brought. Yeah, so uh, actually that's uh, 
that speaks to what I was going to ask about. Uh, having just gone through the, the tenure process myself, um, and none of that stuff counts um, at all. It, it, I mean, they don't care. Uh, departments do like to see this type of engagement when they're hiring. They, they, they love it. They love to see the possibility of it. But the tenure committee of the department, well, the college and university levels, the second gets outside your department, they go, this is great, but where are the, where are the publications, the books, and the articles published? And, um, I wonder in some ways, and this is just a you know, positive question, because I'm not a historian of public memory, I'm a historian of 18th century French North America. And that's what I focus on. Now I read some stuff on public memory because it's really useful, but I can't spend my whole day there. I can't spend my whole day on public memory because I have to spend my time on my 18th century sources. Otherwise I can't do my work properly. And so there's a there's a sort of fracturing of your attention span, a sort of um, you know, some people call it multidisciplinarity, some people call it multitasking. Of course, there have been a lot of studies on multitasking that show just how ineffective a lot of multitasking is. Um, and so then it comes down to the question of, is this really something that all historians should really be engaging in in a major way, or is it kind of like public, this sort of long-standing public history debate where some historians really good public history, but it's not something we can expect all historians, maybe at an institutional level, in departments and colleges, there should be the types of support structures to send this out. We talked about if you were a business, you'd hire somebody to do these things. Why does it fall to the historian to all of a sudden become the public relations person to disseminate the information outside of what they've been really trained to do, which is work within that Wow, that's a great question. Uh, it's a really interesting question. I think ultimately, uh, for me personally, it comes back to the idea of the big tent approach to history. The big tent approach to what it means to be a historian, an archivist, a museum curator, and so on. Nobody needs to do all of that. Nobody needs to be a specialist. Uh, I mean, to say that you don't have to um, categorize yourself or perhaps self-identify as a type of historian that does only public history or only um, 18th century France. But if you choose to do so, then obviously there's a, there's a place for that as well. Um, and what I'm wondering, what I'm thinking is that perhaps, you know, it's connected to one of the questions that we were given here, you know, how can history compete? How can history compete with mainstream media, film, newspapers, web, and so on? Why does it need to compete? Why isn't there simply a, a space for uh, all of these these avenues, all of these, um, let's say, manifestations of history? And perhaps we could just accept that there there is a type of historian who feels uh, very strongly that you know um, a peer-reviewed prestige journal is the only way, the only path to promotion. And then there will be other historians who feel that if you work at a publicly funded institution, then your research inevitably belongs to the public and should be accessible to the public in the most digestible manner available, which may today be Twitter and may tomorrow be something else. So I'm, I'm just thinking that really there's no, from my point of view at least, there's no competition between all of these um, types of history. And ultimately, it may be that uh, your research in 18th century France 
later is read, understood, discussed uh, in, a, in a museum and becomes part of an exhibition. In fact, you may be involved in consulting on that exhibition and all the power to you, right? It seems to me that those kind of partnerships like the kind that we heard earlier that are happening between universities, uh, institutions of public history and so on, are really the way of the future because we can't be everything to everyone. Let's share what we have. Let's, let's somehow pile all of our skills uh, together and see what, what comes of that. My personal opinion. Can I just add, really quickly add to that? Ultimately, we, we need all kinds of historians. Right? I, I, I'm very much active in the public history world, but I actually don't like the term public history. I'm a historian, period. When I'm with my public history folk, I'm a public historian. And when I'm with the general public, I just say I'm a historian, because you start saying public historian, they don't actually know what that means. But ultimately, the public historian and the academic historian, to use those categories, both have to exist, because one needs the other, in my opinion. If there weren't people in the university, in the academic field, doing the research, when I come as a public historian to come and use some of this material, if it's not there, that means I have to do it, first off. Uh, and secondly, as, an, as a public servant, I don't have the opportunity or the, or, or the availability to be able to go and do that. I can't go and spend five years researching the fur trade. I can't. I don't, I don't have the time because it's not what I'm mandated to do by the department. So to me, there, is, there shouldn't be an actual debate. You, you want to be an academic historian? Be an academic historian. I fully encourage you, and please let's share our research. But at the same time, the issue of universities not recognizing the different media as part of tenure, well, that's a completely different debate. Uh, and I think it's one that's being, it's not just unique to history. I think it's across the board in all fields, from what I can tell. This is great. That's the, I sit on the uh, promotion tenure committee, and it's exactly the kind of questions that uh, needs to be brought up with uh, graduate students, but also uh, new uh, professors. Um, what are we expecting uh, junior professors to do when they are hired, but also when they progress so that they get promotion uh, and tenure? And um, I don't think there is, as you said, one simple uh, answer or solution that fits for everyone. But there is certainly something which is becoming clearer and clearer in the picture, is that whatever you do, whether you work as a 18th or 19th century French, American historians, whether you do, like me, digital history or uh, work with uh, student teachers, there is one thing that we're all increasingly expected to do. It's knowledge mobilization and transfer. We all have to do that. It's the big buzzword of shirt. I was talking with uh, Chad Gaffield about that recently. You will not get funding if you don't show the relevance of your work in having some kind of impact down the road. The impact could be in your own field, scholarly field. But it can be broader than that. And the example you talked about, about uh, designing museum exhibits, about being consulted. I was consulted, for example, for the creation of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, because they wanted people to uh, uh, investigate that. Uh, historians can be you know, used for so many different kinds of things. You say, well, 
working on 18th or 19th century history, what does this have to do with today, the present? Well, here's an example. A textbook came out recently in the U.S., dealing in particular in a section of the textbook about uh, the uh, Civil War. And there was a passage in there where the author of the textbook talked about the fact that the Confederate Army created, uh, enrolled blacks uh, into their army, and even created two black uh, regiments uh, that would fight for uh, the Confederate. And uh, when it came out public and so on, and she was questioned about that, well, she said that she had found the information on the internet. And then she thought it was good enough uh, for the textbook. Well, here's a good way for an historian to get into the debate and say, well, wait a minute here. Uh, there are other ways of doing history. So the kinds of work you do may initially have impact in your own field of study where you do research and publication. But it has also resonance outside of that in so many different kinds of ways. So it's how you decide to mobilize that knowledge. And obviously, uh, writing newspaper article will not get you tenure or any kind of things like that. You need to have those scholarly peer review support. You need to bring in some money through research grant agencies and so on. Uh, these are ranked very highly, and for some good reasons as well. But increasingly, we're expecting more, more professors. Why? Because the public is also expecting more of us. Because they don't know what's happening in those so-called ivory towers. They don't know what's happening here. So that was the main argument of Chuck Gaffield when he came into power. He says, instead of complaining that the public doesn't know what we're doing, we need to show the relevance of what we do. And I think that's more and more what we're expecting junior professors, is show the relevance of what you do and the impact of what you do have on society. Um. So we're coming down to the last 20 minutes. Um, I'd like to steer some conversation towards teaching again. Um, and questions. I'm kind of, I have these questions because we are talking a lot about Twitter and social media. Um, and everybody being able to access information and being able to self-educate, etc. Um, so perhaps I start with a question with you. Um, where do you see the idea of the exhibit or the exhibition going if somebody can just walk into a museum and tweet or post uh, a picture of the exhibit or comment on the tour um, on Facebook or on Twitter or on Instagram? Wow, okay, so it's a great question. Um, I think that probably in one word, the answer is visitor-centered. Uh, so along the lines of uh, recent pedagogical uh, research that has suggested that student-centered classrooms uh, facilitate, <coughs> facilitate all kinds of learning styles, I think that what we're looking at uh, in the museum currently is a visitor-centered exhibition where, in fact, uh, a visitor tweeting or responding in some way, in any way, ultimately even in a negative way to the exhibit is an interaction that the museum will eventually uh, welcome um, because it, it shows engagement, it shows potentially um, where improvements can be made and where uh, possibly 
more knowledge can be sought. So that's in terms of social media. Um, I think some museums already have been working on visitor curated um, exhibitions where it's been, for example, crowdsourced, where the, the artifacts themselves are crowdsourced from a community. I'm thinking especially about smaller local um, museums who may not have the, the depth of a collection. Uh, so they can actually reach out to their community and say, look, we'd like to present an exhibition on this subject. What do you have in your basement, attic, and so on that would contribute to this? And so people are, are engaged with that. Surprisingly, uh, people seem to engage more with an institution when they can actually see their own personal story. Maybe that's not so surprising. When they see their own personal story reflected in the exhibition. So crowdsourcing is probably um, one avenue towards that. Maybe also... Uh, revealing a little bit more of how a museum exhibit comes to be. In other words, involving the public at earlier stages when the conception is uh, still underway, uh, possibly talking about what kind of subjects people would like to see in a museum, uh, and ultimately having them uh, make suggestions about the, the theme, about the inclusion, about the artifacts and the ideas that are presented there. Um, there we go and in terms of education itself it seems to me uh, that asking students to look at an exhibit or, or potentially suggest an exhibit maybe even develop one uh, is itself uh, a really interesting avenue towards public engagement and that might take the form of digital history ultimately it may be a, a digital it may be an online exhibition it may involve uh, bringing together artifacts from different uh, museums, as, as museums already do, right? They, they are very involved in um, borrowing and loaning objects uh, to each other. But what if that were to happen in a virtual sense? What if that were to say, uh, one example that I've, um, I've been thinking about and, and it's been tossed around a little bit on the web is the idea, let's say, if we were talking about the rebellions of 1837, if we were talking about Upper Canada in particular, all these prisoner boxes that were made at the time, a good number of them uh, are kept by the City of Toronto uh, museums, but there are others elsewhere. Uh, the Royal Ontario Museum has some, the Canadian Museum of History has some. What if all of those uh, virtual images of prisoner boxes were brought together and we could actually analyze, see possibly um, all angles of each of those prisoner boxes, think about who made them, uh, for what reasons, uh, for whom, because often they were gifts, and then, uh, wow, with 3D printers, maybe classrooms could print a prisoner box and, and think of, Anyway, I, this is just one example, but I think that there are all sorts of avenues uh, for museums to engage more fully uh, via technology with each other and with the public. Um, do any other panelists want to add? Hi. These are just my thoughts, by the way. Is, uh, these are this is what other people are suggesting. So I'm just I'm just sharing with you what I've heard uh, from other people, and and archives are thinking about that too. Because um, as, as Jean Pierre said about uh, academic historians and public historians, I think that um, archivists and museum curators really need each other as well. And so when when we talk about artifacts, we're not talking only about 3D <coughs> artifacts anymore, especially if we're talking about virtual exhibitions where um, documents can be much more accessible, where there's no conservation concerns about paper and so on. Um, so archives are really part of that conversation. Uh, Nina, are 
a simple answer to that. It would just <laughs> not be here. It would have been provided and we would just go with it. Um, uh, there is an uh, institute in the U.S. doing every year a survey around across North America about students' experience on campus. It's called ECAR. Uh, E-C-A-R. E-C-A-R. And they do a study every year surveying undergrad students across North America, asking them about their experience. And some of the questions include uh, their experience in the classroom, but also their use of technology. And what's interesting is that uh, there is an assumption, particularly among the professors, still very prevalent, is that the more we put online, the less students will get in class. Because they'll just go, as you say, online, get it, and then do their work. And what the evidence is showing, it's not true. Actually, the more professors put online, the more students are engaged, and the more are likely to come to your class. And so it's very counterintuitive. So we, we like to think that if we're going to put our lectures and materials on the web, or like if you're here at the university, you're using um, Blackboard, uh, well, why would they come to class? You know, they can just pick the material, do the readings. No, uh, the reality is that students want to have that engagement uh, with the professors, uh, with the community that they're, they're part of. And I think it's a matter of balance. To a certain point, they want more and more, but at a, at a certain point, they get saturated. Uh, they don't want more online. What they want is to have still the conversation, the discussion, the questions, and uh, the answers from the professor. So the evidence are showing that it's not true, uh, that technology actually is taking students away from a learning experience with uh, the community. And I've tried it myself. I don't know if, you've, if the other ones have done it. Uh, the more I'm using technology with my students, surprisingly, they're more engaged. Um, it doesn't necessarily do that they do the reading any better. Uh, <laughs> But at least they don't have any reason to tell me they don't have the reading. It's right there. They can do it anywhere they want. Uh, they have it. But within the context of the classroom, I think often we don't necessarily use it uh, as much as we could. Uh, we use it as a way to send out the information. Uh, so it's posted on the blackboard. It's available online. But beyond this, I think the challenge is how we can make use of it within the context uh, of the classroom in which we work. Uh, with the student. So if I were to think of this uh, this past year, I would say that I would agree with my experience anecdotally, you know, supporting this research in that uh, I had much better classroom attendance. 
even though lectures were online, uh, you know, Facebook, all those things, uh, students were incredibly uh, chatty and, and social in, in some of the classes in particular. And when they couldn't come to class, you know, a class of 80, 90 students, and, and I've got students coming to say, sorry, I couldn't make your class. And I'm like, like happens, like, you know, that, but they want to let you know that they're not there. Um, and, you know, there was a question about the, the conventional lecture being over in this idea. And I mean, I think that we, you know, need to have some element of, of uh, providing information, um, but that there might be a, you know, an important way in which we can integrate these technologies, film, um, documentaries, um, you know, small group learning and, and that, you know, getting to know the students and what they're looking for is helpful. So try to start that from the beginning of the term. Who are you? Where do you come from? What do you want from this class? What is it that you're interested in? And then adapting and just working with, you know, the students in that way and technology can facilitate that, but doesn't have to replace, right? There are some people you know, I do have one student who has submitted everything online, and I've yet to meet them. And that's one out of 130 students. I don't know that what I could have done differently to get that student out of their house. I keep asking to meet them, but, you know, it'll be the grade that they get that probably wakes them up. But other than that, right, you know, you will have students that have busy lives or they something's going on that they aren't engaged. But even the ones who don't necessarily get their work done, they're still engaged and they're like, I'm really sorry that I'm not engaged. Like it's, I think students fundamentally want to learn, want to get the tools to learn, and want to be better researchers, writers. And that's the two things that they often say. I want to learn how to research and I want to learn how to write. And I think the context information of dates and people, you know, is a way in which they learn that. But that's you know, there's certain elements of history that really interest them, but at the end they want to be, you know, better participants in the literate society that we have. And we can do lots of technology to support that. Could it be that technology also allows uh, more people to participate, people that may not traditionally participate in a tete-a-tete, um, let's say, uh, people who may have other challenges that uh, teachers and historians generally are not aware of. Uh, I don't know, I'm thinking about mobility challenges, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about maybe class gender um, issues that might bring in, I don't know, child care, mm -hmm. uh, last minute uh, elder care issues and so on. I'm just wondering if uh, by interacting with students online, you might be offering other avenues so that people of all backgrounds and all um, life situations, regardless of age, regardless uh, perhaps of personality, maybe some timid people may uh, be more forthcoming online than they would be in person, feel free to ask questions that they might hesitate otherwise to do. But I'm just thinking that, uh, in fact, we may be moving towards a more inclusive um, discipline of history. So what everyone is saying is that there are still a possibility for jobs for our PhD candidates in the room today. <laughs> I honestly think that we, we have to think outside the box for that. Uh, like the, the 
the idea that you do you go to grad school and then you put out your CV and then you get a job for the federal government or you end up in a museum or you end up in a professor is like the kind of the dominant way we think about but I think there's so many now different ways of, of thinking about what you guys do or can bring uh, to the professions. Uh, historians are useful in so many different kinds of ways that um, we don't necessarily think initially. Many of my students uh, come from history department, they come to education, they get their degree, but the market is saturated. Uh, most of them will not necessarily get a job, uh, certainly not a full-time job initially. Uh, but people have to uh, reconfigurate themselves, do different kinds of things. I have no, uh, students who come to me, and when they're done, well, they end up working as museum educators because uh, uh, they need people to uh, educate through the museums, and they don't need just the historians. They don't need they need people with also educational background and degrees. Uh, there's so many other different, I think, venues than just typical streamlining. And, and I think ultimately the, the history field, the education in history from the BA all the way up to the doctorate is, is something that allows very specific and very unique skill sets that are only found in my personal opinion as an, <laughs> as an historian and as a civil servant that changes how people interact. The for those who aren't aware, it's roughly one quarter to one third, depending on how you want to count, of all civil servants that have a history degree. That's 100,000 civil servants, roughly, that have a history degree of one level or another. The number of assistant deputy ministers and deputy ministers with history degrees is 40% have history degrees. So there's a certain skill set that actually being able to do research, to do the analysis, and by the way, it's the analysis part. There's a special skill to being able to do historical analysis, and that is so transferable, it isn't even fun. I know that I can pull a history student and say, can you please do this? And nine times out of 10, the history student who works for me knows exactly what to do. They know how to do the research, how to come up with a, with a plan to attack it, and how to actually produce something that can actually be useful for me. Katie is sitting right here. I'm going to point her out. She hates it when I do it. I'm going to do it this. Has done this on several occasions when she worked for me last summer. It is very, very good skill. And that ultimately is one of the things about what everyone needs to think about when you're in the field. Because there are very few jobs as academics, as professors. There aren't many. If you're on the H Canada listserv, you'll know that there's maybe one a year, maybe two if you're lucky, and then there's a the, then there's a variety of other things. But when you go into the different fields, into the different job environments, it's about flexibility, adaptability, and the ability that history students, I find, have to be able to take the information that's being presented to them, digest it, and 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 literally spit it back out in a manner that is understandable to people. You can tell who's a political science student, who was a political science student in the federal government, and who's a history student. Because the political science student will arrive with grandiose theories that make absolutely no sense, while <laughs> the historian, the history student will arrive with an actual concrete set of, this happened, and then this is what we should probably do with it. I, I speak from experience. This is a lot of, it's very evident in the government as to who has what kind of degree. 
We have time for uh, one or two small comments from our panels, uh, our panelists. So you I was going to say uh, that we should not underestimate the power of reverse mentoring as well. So as much as social media may be used to disseminate information, to gather information, to search, uh, and so on, I think that there's also an element of reverse mentoring that's going on there. Uh, so by following a student, uh, by following professors and um, people elsewhere, I personally am, am learning every day. And so uh, that's just to say that that knowledge is valued. And when it comes to placements, internships, co-ops, and so on, um, that, is, that is why you are being hired. It's not just because you have a skill set that you're going to do something for the institution. It's because you are potentially motivating the people who work there. Um, so I encourage you to, to keep doing it. And just as a follow-up, you know, agree that the skill set, I, I certainly, um, while considered uh, other disciplines that people had their training in to <coughs> hire, but consistently went to students with the training in history at, you know, MA, PhD, and, and undergraduate level is the ones who are able to do the work that was required. And uh, I certainly think that uh, this is important skills. Uh, I think it's in the United States, American Historical Association just received a large grant to actually study, right, alternative careers for PhDs, thinking outside that box of, you know, you have to go into academia at different levels. And there have been sessions, you know, talking about transferable skills and, and, you know, again, social entrepreneurism, um, you know, education, filmmaking. There's just so many ways in which you can contribute and um, writing well. I mean, when you write well, you communicate well. There are a lot of firms and, and, and private businesses that can make use of your skills that, you know, they don't know what this Twitter thing is and, and they need somebody who has, you know, these skills to be able to support them and, and consistently in organizations I'm involved with they'll talk about you know students who have the skills described by Jean-Pierre as well as, as social media skills or diverse technology skills that they're the ones that they're looking to. Thank you very much um, and just as a side note, Professor McCutcheon I know you've been tweeting about Piazza I so tried, there was no hashtag. Why <laughs> <laughs> did you just create the hashtag Piazza I did but there was no like official hashtag. <laughs> well, now that should be your hashtag for the yes. future. <laughs> Next year. Um, well, that brings this uh, wonderful roundtable discussion to a close. Thank you to our <laughs> You've been listening to a recording of The Future of the Past, Transmitting History to Future Generations. The session was held as part of the 2014 Pierre Savard Conference at the University of Ottawa. You can find recordings of other talks at activehistory.ca.